Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The phrase, I bring it up often with our players, the relentless execution of fundamentals. Score first, score last. Do not be an effing fan, meaning don't be a spectator and positive and optimistic. It's important because it's easy to lose track, man. You lose track when things aren't going well. It's easy to look good when things are going good. I love guys that look good when things are going well. Well, Joe Madden, just another Saturday at the ballpark. My first thought is, we did not suck. (laughs) Welcome back to The Run from Odyssey and Major League Baseball. I am Matt Spiegel. Roy Wood Jr. is here, and we're doing 10 episodes total. We can do it, Roy. We totally can. can I know we can. can do it. In these first couple episodes, we're just laying the foundation to get to know the team that is going to make this incredible, indelible postseason run. And one of the maybe most compelling characters from that entire cast of 2016 is the man that we're going to be spending some time with today, who I think is one of the coolest baseball people of all time, and probably, in my opinion, one of the most monumental managers in the history of the Cubs, Jim Riggleman. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Roy, they didn't win. They didn't win with Riggs. Nice guy. Very sweet guy. Once called into the score during a uh, rain delay. It's a true story from the manager's office. Um, nice man, but they didn't win with him. Try it again. Well, this man had a different agenda during the rain delay in the World Series, and we're going to get to that. Joe Madden. Joe Madden. Just there's so many things that are just interesting about him. Just his lore, his aura as a person, right down to how he signed, like how Theo and them recruited him. Like this isn't a guy you bring into a big glass corporate room and you put a PowerPoint presentation on the board of why you should join the organization. We'll ask him about it, but I think, didn't you say there was like lawn chairs and tall boy beers involved? (laughs) Yes, there is like a space in front of his RV where he and Theo and Jed decided to collaborate together because they went down to grab him personally. He had built an amazing thing in Tampa Bay, this or this organization that had no money. He and Andrew Friedman, who just went to the Dodgers at this time, which is why Joe was even considering possibly leaving Tampa Bay, had built an amazing thing where they had no money. They stayed really efficient. They had a really cheap roster with really young guys, and Joe brilliantly kept them focused and built great young players and more than anything, created an atmosphere of fun and positivity and baseball passion that is really unrivaled. 
You know, like he built an amazing thing that the Cubs wanted to get a piece of. He was a winner and a culture builder. You were there on the ground when he came and when he was gone. Your time around Joe Madden, because I'm going to just be honest, he, he seemed like a hipster. Like, Joe Madden, just just at first glance, he's got people wearing pajamas. I know he's all zen, and he's he's writing inspirational whatever the hell on the scorecards every day, like words of affirmation and all of that. Joe Madden just seemed like one of them. Like, he seemed like somebody that ain't got furniture in his house. <laughs> Respectfully. Like, he just seems like a Popovich, Steve Jobs, Phil Jackson-ass dude. Just, you know, furniture takes the energy from your soul, and it does not sit. The angle at which a love seat makes you sit removes the chakras from there and makes you swing at two two breaking balls. Well, see, you know what? That's exactly it. Joe was this mix of ridiculous team-building events like a petting zoo, you know, and brought in a magician to do tricks for guys in spring training, and also (laughs) wanting to help people be mindfully zen at the plate and have what he would call the beginner's mind as they approached any baseball task. So he was... Was he a hipster, like, trying real hard? Yeah. But was he also legitimately curious and open-minded? Yes. A friend of mine once referred to him as a 60-year-old college student. I loved that because he he still had that mindset every day of his baseball life. And, oh, by the way, growing up in the Angels organization, he taught everything. He'd been a hitting coach. He'd been an outfield coach. He'd been an infield coach. He'd been a bench coach for Mike Sosha when they won a World Series. Joe had learned everything and could teach anything in baseball. So a remarkably gifted manager with everything you need in the toolbox. But he had the players wearing pajamas for fun, a petting zoo, which I don't even know. Like, even pre-COVID, that just seems like that violates some weird health regulation. Look a little nervous around the flamingo. They're a devious animal. you got to be careful around the flamingo. So Joe's goal in life is to own a bar called the Pink Flamingo. Like it. Like, what type of animals were in this petting zoo? Was it like llamas or was it like smaller, like ferrets and gerbil types? I know there were penguins on the field at Wrigley. <laughs> I know, there's a picture somewhere of Anthony Rizzo, I think with like a baby koala in his lap and this big, goofy, crap-eating grin um, on his face. It's like, you know, how do you not smile? And, and this is the thing about Joe. He knows that the players need to be relaxed and smiling. <laughs> Every single day. And he is relentless in his efforts to try to get them to smile. My favorite thing he ever did in Tampa Bay, by the way, is just for fun. You know how every position in baseball has a number? Center field is eight and six is shortstop, right? He once did a lineup that was 8675309 after the Tommy Two Tone song. And he just did it on purpose one day. Yes. You know what else it was about about Joe Madden for me, Matt? It was his look. The glasses. Like, they weren't nerd glasses. Like, they... How can I put this politely? Joe Madden looks like... Those glasses made Joe Madden look like, like the senior employee at an Apple store. <laughs> or some guy who brews his own beer. 
<laughs> but it's good beer. Like, yeah. you know, everybody, oh, I brew beer, and I, but you hear Joe Madden talk about it. you be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to drink that. Yes, oh, I love that. And there's also a little Buddy Holly and, like, Elvis Costello in the glasses, like, kind of relentlessly young and cool and edgy, even though he really has a military-grade haircut underneath that thing. Yes, and so the glasses add to the mystique. He could get... He could get contacts or LASIK surgery if he wanted to. <laughs> You're a manager. I know you got the money for But he knows that the glasses, he has to know. All right, Matt. This is the moment, man. Now joining us, he's currently the manager of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim of Orange County or whatever county that is. But in 2016, he was the manager of the Chicago Cubs. Joe Madden, welcome to The Run. Joe, before we talk about 2016, we have to go back. We have to go back in time a couple of years. Did you ever think you would be the manager of the Cubs? I didn't have any clue that I was going to be going to Chicago until Andrew went to Los Angeles. So I had not really been thinking about it. Uh, we had played there for the first time that in 14, and I was totally enamored by the whole place. But uh, there was no thought in my mind that I was going to end up there in 15, not even a smidgen of a thought. And so this all started going. Once Andrew left, I had a two-week window to be able to negotiate with other teams. I was a free agent for two weeks. And um, and that's when it, it started to percolate. And eventually I'm driving my RV actually from Tampa to Arizona. And on that ride, I was permitted to meet with Jed and Dio. We were, my RV was parked in um, Pensacola, right? Yeah, but near Pensacola. And it was this really cool little spot on the water. And actually the RV, you're able to back it up and you know, draw a little personal beach behind the RV. So I had a, some tall Miller Lights, the 16-ounce cans that were tremendous at the wide mouth. They showed up, and we planted some little lawn chairs in the beach right below the uh, RV and started talking to them. Philosophically, it was like so in such an alignment. I mean, but they thought it was right, what I thought. And uh, regarding how to do it, what it would take, those, those kind of things philosophically, the way I like to win a game, the kind of players I like, and I knew that uh, there was a lot of nice players in the cup system coming along the way. And after that meeting there, uh, of course, uh, I thought it was really good. Apparently they did too. We went there for some Chinese food that night before they had a run and jump on the plane back. And uh, so from that moment, driving west, um, I was talking to Jay and, you know, friends are calling. And uh, it just became uh, more and more attractive, obviously. Probably even by the time we got to Beaumont, haven't said any since. Yeah, so another by the time day. I get by the time I get to Phoenix, by the time I got to Beaumont, <laughs> uh, I figured it out, and that was it. When you come here, Theo had already done it in Boston, like give an entire town and a fan base what they'd been lacking forever was was giving the Cubs fan base what they had been lacking forever. Was that part of the appeal for you to come here? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, 108 years was really, or with, at that time, what was it, 107 or 107, whatever, right? 107 at that time? 106. Uh, yeah, 106. Yeah, that was what was really attractive, too. I, I love challenges. I love challenges, and I love building things. I love building baseball things. And uh, I had really been rooted, grounded, taught how to do that for years, and that's how I started. 
I didn't quite understand the, the magnitude of the, the cup thing. I didn't. Um, I played against some instructional leagues and nothing in the National League. I made one visit there and did not really uh, get the, the magnitude and you know, what the fan base was like and the city was like um, until I actually arrived. Um, even when we were flying in, Jay and I were flying in for the first time. And I'm you know, looking at the, the expansive city as, as the playmans at O'Hare. And you're thinking you're gonna have to have to influence this, <laughs> all these houses down there, right? And uh, so that's that's kind of daunting, but it's exciting. But I did not have the base that I've had, meaning starting as a scout and as a minor league manager, working at outposts, working your way up. I was prepared, you know, and I and I knew that. So you don't get nervous, you don't get anything but excited because now you take everything that you've learned, you have a chance to put it in play in a situation. That if we could turn, if we could actually pull this off. So then, to that point, Coach, let's fast forward then to October of 2016, and because of all of that, as I like to call it, you know, the Star Wars, the Dagobah system. You'd travel, you'd learn with Yoda, the outpost, and all of that stuff. As a manager, you are having to handle so many different personalities. But in October, how do you handle those different personalities? And what was your approach to keeping the players happy when everybody was tense? As With every round of the playoffs as it goes, the vice is getting tighter and tighter and the anxiety is higher and higher in the clubhouse. So there's only one way to do that. You just have to be straightforward and honest with everybody. Uh, the moment you start to dissemble or not want to tell them you know, the full truth, that's when you run into trouble. So whenever you're speaking with somebody, they have to hear exactly what you're thinking and what you believe, not a watered-down version, not somebody else's opinion, not somebody else's thoughts. It's got to be your own. You have to own that stuff. And when you do, then you could talk to anybody about anything. Um, and that's the way it should be. So when you get to the playoffs in October, you have to make decisions, tough decisions, um, based on preparation, what you know of these people, know you know what the opposition's like, and there's times when a player, not every time a player is a great self-evaluator. I would say that they're most of the time they're not. And so they're always going to perceive themselves in a higher uh, plane or perspective than maybe a good scout would. And you expect to be honest with them because this is not about them. It's not about me. It's about the city. It's about the team. It's about the organization. It's about that stuff first. And so when you permit somebody to become larger than that, that's when you're in the problems within an organization. That is an anchor that can drag you down. That will get in the way of your success. Tom Verducci writes about Jason Hayward shirtless coming into the coming into your office, coach. You know, and saying, "Why am I not starting?" It's that's a powerful, strong personality that you have to tell a hard truth. with his shirt off. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's intimidating. <laughs> I love Jay. Jay Jay Hay is awesome, man. And the thing about that is, though, that he comes in, he speaks his truth, and I give it back to him. You know, my truth. And he's of that ilk that uh, he's got to get it off his chest, which he, what they need to do. Like a, a player needs to get it off his chest. I don't want them to carry that baggage with them. Once he gets it off, once he hears the answer, uh, the line that I've used for years, and it's true, is if I tell you the truth, you might not like me for a week or 10 days, but you come back. But if I lie to you, you're going to hate me forever. So it's about that. And a good professional, a real professional, not a pseudo-professional, a real one, wants to hear the truth. 
and they can deal with the truth. And again, they might not like it in the beginning. They'll process it. They'll chew on it. They'll digest it. Then they'll come back better for it. And so that was it. Jay, Jay Hay obviously didn't like it. It was the right thing to do in the moment. And it's, it's even furthermore, it's, it's uh, translated in the fact that he's the guy that calls the meeting uh, during the seventh game. Yeah. And he, he still bought in. He's still a big part of it. I still believe. So who knows to what extent he thought after the decision to not play him that day and how the rest of that moved forward and what created the thoughts that he had even as that game was in progress. Everything is cumulative. Everything is interconnected. What, what do you know about that meeting? A lot, a lot of people want to know what was happening in that meeting. What Jason was saying. I have no idea. I've never asked. I'm weird with that. I, I don't get inquisitive. Like, what did he say? Did he say, mention my name? You know, everybody's always paranoid about stuff like that. That was a great moment among the players, and it led to victory. I was upstairs. I told you, uh, checking out the weather report on my iPad with Jed Hoyer, and Jed was there, and he was, you know, trying to be optimistic. And uh, I was trying to be optimistic in return and look at the weather map. And uh, whatever they said when I walked downstairs and on that field, it was like the game was just beginning. They were so jacked up. It was really impressive to see. Uh, that's the thing. Like, it's their, it's their moment, right? Like, you're the boss and you're the leader, but still, it's, it's their room, right? It's their clubhouse and their moment in some ways. That's a tricky balance for you. It is, but it is. And I mean, it, but you just said it's accurate. Everybody's looking for a rousing speech from the manager or the coach. Baseball's different, man. Uh, baseball, we do every day. And by that time, how many games was that that we had played in that year? Football, it's different. You play once a week. Basketball, you play a couple days a week. It's different. We play every day. I always, my concern has always been if I talk too much, then they will absolutely turn you off at some point. I think if you pick your spots, then your voice carries greater weight. But in a moment like that, it really battled with the peers thought among themselves. Not what a coach thought, not what a manager thought, what they thought. You talk right. about optimism. Where did that approach come from? And all you, you seem like the type of coach that would always hit the, the steam release valve on the team periodically during the year. Whether it was, you know, the wacky. And I'll be honest, as a lifelong Cup fan, it was it was different to see. I, I try to come to spring training as much as I can, and it was a different feel even at spring training in 2016, where I was like, almost the question of you know, this Matt, where it's like. Are they taking this seriously? Why are you smiling? What's with all the smiling and enjoying the smiling? <laughs> I think I've learned more from the people that I thought had done it improperly than I learned from the people that I thought that it did it well to write. The guys that screwed it up, I've been around coaches that get heavy-handed in that moment, coaches that are punitive. Baseball, you have to throw stuff in the trash can and move on to the next day as quickly as you can. I've been involved with teams that uh, leadership has done nothing but carry negativity with them from the previous day that always leads to another bad day and then to another bad day. And then that's what the players become. And that's what they believe in. And that's when I say people have been raised by wolves. Well, you've been raised by wolves, you're, you're going to turn into one. And you're not going to necessarily, you're not going to be able to, again, throw the, the negativity or the bad performance away and move on to the next moment. My best coaches, 
that's that's what I learned from that. My best coaches, uh, I'll tell you, Coach Bob Root from Lafayette College, my backfield coach. I worked so hard for that man because all he did was communicate with me. He communicated with me and he made me better through communication and never, never through intimidation. Love it. It is a game. <laughs> it's a game, folks. It is, but we treat it like life and death. The more you treat it like the game, the more successful you can be and, and the more readily you'd be able to throw negative away. I'm, I'm telling you, and I've compared it, Cal Ripken Jr., being able to play that many games in a row is because he treated it like a game. He treated everything like a game. Pre-game, actual game, everything Cal did, he treated it like a game. And thus, there was a joy to do what he did every day. That he wanted to be out there, and he can, because he didn't let it drag him down. He didn't let it beat him up. Joe, we're wondering who that was for you on this Cubs team in 2016. The guy who loved to be there every day, was passionate, treated the game like a game, and helped feed the psyche of the team that way. Who was that guy on the Cubs? I loved Anthony Rizzo. Anthony was outstanding with that. This is Anthony Rizzo. As the muscle of the Chicago Cubs lineup, they decided to go into business. The souvenir business. Brizzo Souvenir Company, please hold. We founded Brizzo Souvenir Company to get you the home run balls you deserve. Help me help you get some baseballs. It's a good deal, Joe. Yeah, have you seen us play? We authenticate them with our bats. We, we put, put the ding in dinger. Anthony's a very respectful young man. Raised really well. I don't know if you know his parents. I love his dad and his mom, too. Uh, it was just, that's, who he, that's who Anthony is. He was, for me, a really optimistic, positive person and a positive force within that group, no question. Of course, David Ross, and, you know, Rossi deservedly so is the manager there right now. David, you know, David could be tough at times, but David's also a very optimistic and positive person too. And I love working with him. Um, you know, among the group on the field, I mean, Javi, Javi's Javi, Wilson, uh, the pitching staff, you know, Johnny Lester, Johnny, uh, I really got to appreciate him. We became much closer as we went through those five years together. Because uh, Johnny um, has high standards. And, and John, again, he was raised in a certain way where he had come from and can be a little guarded at times. So you've got to break through that exterior. But when you get there, uh, this is another guy that just was driven uh, by winning. And uh, and uh, to me, had a very solid approach to the day. I'll tell you, we all know it. You had a connection with Javier Baez. You reached him like nobody has before, like nobody has since. What um what what was the key to those that kind of connection getting him to look the other hit hit it to the opposite field or just to accept his singles? Why were how did you mean Javi strikeout list? How did Javi? <laughs> he's trying to be nice. I'm gonna just ask this straight to you. So, what's your magic? That started that started uh, when I got the job and uh, Theo asked me to go to Puerto Rico to to meet him. Uh, so I go to I flew down to Puerto Rico and Eddie Perez was the manager and Eddie had been a a uh, player of mine with the Angel organization. And so I go to uh, San Juan there and I'm watching him play and I get to, to talk to him uh, during batting practice, et cetera, before I think uh, that by going there, uh, it probably elicited something within hobby that uh, a greater acceptance for me, taking the time to do something like that and really caring about it. Um, I think it started with that. <clears throat> and number two, going to our first camp uh, in 2015, I remember to Theo and Jed that, okay, maybe he strikes out, maybe this, maybe that, but we're a better team when he's on the field. 
that was my evaluation in spring training. So I thought he would benefit us by being on that team early in 2015. Um, but they, all of that led, led to the point that if I sat with him in my office, which I did, and I would talk to him about different things, he would listen. And he's a very respectful hobby. He's really a respectful young man. And if you could just sit him down and explain to him and get his feedback, you're going to get a good result almost all the time. So it's we did. We talked about it. And I would bring out different points or thoughts to him. And uh, real simple, not complicated. And we just asked him to go out there and incorporate that, even on his defense. I asked him, I said, listen, this spectacular, just let that happen. I want you to make the routine play routinely and let your athleticism take care of everything else. So if the balls hit at you, pick that up, throw it to first base, hit him in the chest, next play. Anything else that occurs, go ahead and be hobby. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's how I spoke to him because he is, he's, he's an artist. He's an absolute artist out there. Oh my goodness. Wow. You gotta be kidding me. You have gotta be kidding me. Javi Baez. El Mago indeed. Did, did some players think he was a little too flashy or, or, or just not, not quite appreciate and, and understand how Javi had to be that way to be as good as he was. That's just how he was wired. Well, that's it. I mean, uh, we all, we all have our own personal biases, right? And everybody has their preconceived notions of what something's supposed to look like. Old school coaches would absolutely have changed Javi. Absolutely would have changed Javi when they first saw him in 2014, 15, whatever. He would want, they would have wanted to change him. They would have tried to reel him in. Because he was flashy, he did make mistakes, he made some mental mistakes. His swing was out of control. I compared him to John Daly at that time. I mean, of course. You know, so. At least he wasn't Charles Barkley. <laughs> but the point was, you've got to let him be himself first. And as he's being himself, then you start reining him in a bit, like I suggested. And then uh, the extraordinary stuff can hit, whatever you got to do. And in the batter's box. You got to adjust later in the count. Yeah, other side of the field's got to be in play. Uh, and when you are on that side, my God, I mean, he has power to hit the ball out to right field, center field. The guy's got enormous power. Just don't restrict yourself to left field. And accepting, listen, he was never a great walker, and he's never going to be that. But if for me, a guy like him, and I've had others, to really bear down on their B-hack or their two-strike approach. Make sure that he really has the self-awareness to incorporate it at the right time. That's what you try to get across. To play like him, but to, to try to change an artist like that would be an absolute tremendous mistake. So, Joe, I have to be the guy to ask you about Aroldis Chapman. One of the big storylines of that postseason for those of us who are watching and talking about it, was how much he used Chapman, including in Game 7 of the World Series, where he gives up the big home run, and then he still comes back out uh, after that. But for a lot of people watching, there had been this sense throughout the whole postseason that you were going to use Aroldis as much as you could every one of those series, every night, until there was absolutely nothing left in the tank. Is that how it felt on your end? We talked about that from the beginning, and uh, but then we, if you remember early when we got him, um, I was told that you know just he was good for more than three outs, and then put him in a game at home when he got roughed up, and then after that game we talked and uh, he had not really done that, and so we we shelved it till we got to the playoffs, 
And then when she got to the playoffs, she took the wraps off. No, I was not uh, told anything at that particular point. And overall, the bullpen was not that strong at, at that juncture. Mike Montgomery and Carl Edwards were two of the best. And then Woody was also. Um, you know, a lot of the other guys were not pitching to their to their highest level. So this made Chap uh, even more important. If you run the tape back on all of it, first of all, we could not have done that at all without Rivaldis. Rivaldis was the linchpin to all of that. But he did in some of those games in multiple innings was spectacular. So none of that happens without him. And to rely on other guys that you had no real strong idea of what they were going to do when you put them in a situation. And then if you had done that and lost it, that to me would have been untenable. And then they go back to bring in Araldis. Right, exactly. And and that's that's just the way it works. Uh, didn't giving up that home run it had nothing to do with being overused at all. If you look at statistics from that series, him and Miller threw exactly the same number of innings, had almost identical statistics throughout that World Series. The difference was like eight or nine pitches in a row to Davis, and he finally hit his bat. That was the difference, that's all. We would not have won it without him. And then furthermore, him going through the next inning, you have to understand, at that point, Mickey was in the game with Terrell. And Mickey forced him to use more breaking balls in that inning. And that's what got him through, quite simply. So this is the kind of stuff you got to break down. And it's just such a, uh, to me, a sophomore method to describe what had happened in that game is, you know, he was tired or whatever. He was, everybody's tired. <laughs> so he with the World Series, everybody's tired, but he was absolutely our best option throughout that whole time. And without him, we would have never made it to the seventh game of the World Series. Is there pressure as a manager? And I mean, and of course, there's pressure in general in the postseason. How much is the pressure to deviate from the traditional baseball data versus what you feel in the moment to decide when to bring in a particular pitcher, when to not let somebody bat? How much pressure did you feel uh, during the World Series with that? There's a lot of difficult moments, difficult calls to be made, obviously. What I did there, what I did in uh, Tampa, what I'm doing here. You get information before the game. You get all kinds of information. Every manager does. And so did uh, Mayo Smith, and so did Whitey, and so did Sparky, and so did everybody else. Earl. I mean, everybody gets information, and then you have to make calls during the course of the game. I know there's to some level there's been there are some places that are more scripted right now, and maybe I, I think it's wrong that the front offices have so much uh, interference in the actual game. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, I want information. I want connection. I want all of that. But when the game actually begins, that's where experience and feel, reality versus theory. So during the course of a campaign like that, there's a lot of choices that you have to make in the speed of the moment. And that, for me, is where experience does matter, where instinct does matter where feel matters. And if you try to say that to any analytical dude, they scoff and they roll their eyes only because they've never done it. Feel is the gift of experience. When you think about that run, that month between October 7 and November 2nd, 2016, what, what what are some moments that pop out in terms of like turning things around, like Addison pumping his fist after the home runs in L.A. on the road? You know, like there's 
was it KB's home run in Game Five against against the Indians that turned things? Like, there's some big moments that that catapulted you guys. Well, I tell you, the the biggest moment, and you're right, but and even Joe Rich's bunk is another one that got the whole thing rolling. Game Four against the Giants. I don't. I can't believe people don't recognize it more strongly. That was the game. That's the game that won the World Series for the Cubs. Down three in the ninth, a four-run rally in the but, ninth. So if you want to dissect the game that catapulted the 2016 team to the World Series championship, it was that game. And you know what was that beautiful? All? You know what was beautiful in that game is that Contreras and Javi, mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. Little, just little singles through the infield, Skip. Just, just, just a little, little contact. Well, we, we double-pinch hit. And I mean, I sent him Cogman to hit. They brought in the lefty, and we came back. I think it was with Contreras at that point. Correct. And then he gets the hit, and then here comes Javi later. And then, and then here comes uh, Aroldis out of the bullpen to, to nail it down. I'm here to, <laughs> nobody knows. I mean, every, everybody thinks they know that we all have these alternative realities. That's the reality. Uh, everything that happened is the reality. And to, to create conjecture otherwise. Well, that's what it's like when you're the manager. You get second-guessed by people who haven't been to the outpost like you. That is, and that's part of, and you know what? That's good. That's what makes it interesting. And that's what I, that's what we need. You need people to be talking in barrooms. I mean, right now, Twitter and whatever, primarily Twitter is the barroom, the, the 2021 version of a bar. Back in the day, you actually had to go sit in a stool and, and argue with somebody, maybe possibly fight because we're in disagreement about things. Now you can just do your thumbs and a more cowardly version as compared to the manly version of putting those elbows on the bar and getting kind of upset. I mean, it's all, we need more of that. You need, you need more of, of uh, the fans becoming passionate, emotionally involved. And that's another subject for me. The more technology we incorporate, the more passion and emotion that's subtracted from the game. And that's what we got to be careful to. So we're always catering to change, which again, I've earlier said is a good thing, but sometimes be careful with what you wish for, because this game, really has been full of emotion for years, uh, whether it's a manager arguing with an umpire or, like I said, a, a barroom discussion back in Hazleton about, uh, you know, the, the Phillies versus the, the Yankees or the Mets, who were the, back in the day was the better center fielder in New York. That doesn't happen anymore because it's too easy to be cowardly in the method that you want to be critical via your thumbs. In October, what was it like just walking around town? Just give me Joe Madden running to the grocery store. What's the grocery? Is it Dominic's? Do you still have a Dominic's? A Jewel, Jewel Lasco. Yeah. yeah, Jewel is my spot. Yeah, okay. but I used to sit and add up the cafecito. Was my little. Um, well, actually, at that time, I was still. I was still in the um, Thompson, right? I was still living in the Thompson. You know, you had that little pancake house right across the street. Uh, all the, I mean, whether it was Gibson's or. Uh, a tavern or whatever uh, up in that particular area. Uh, but you walk around and everybody wanted to talk to you. Was it excitement and or pressure, though? We got excited or you better get it right, pajama man. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. It was a lot of thank yous, good lucks, those kind of things. I loved it. He did. That five years there is the best I've ever experienced. Yes, I could have hung out for more if you know, I had been asked, but wasn't. And, uh, and that's cool. 
that's always going to be looked at as a super special time. And it's nice that it feels that way to you. You know, it's like, regardless of whether people think, oh, they could have done more, could have gone further or however it fell apart. That's, that's going to hold a special place for you forever. It sounds like Joe. But they did, they did go that far. I mean, what are your expectations? What were the expectations before that? I mean, three years of NLCS, one world series, the next year, losing at a wild card game. What was your expectation? What, what any most cities would take that kind of run, especially coming for the cups that come from for some of the years before that. I have, there's not a negative component to that. And I think that particular group that has now been kind of blown up, they did, they did, they did deliver. If you as a cup fan, you the city should have nothing but warm fuzzies about that group and don't ever believe for a second that they underachieved. That would be so wrong. Are your thoughts on your scorecards and just a little words of inspiration, are those for yourself to help keep the Zen-like mentality throughout the game? Or was that something that you adopted along the way? But you're right. I, I wanted to write personal reminders to myself down there. For a while, I was putting uh, recently deceased friends and family, just their, the first initial of their name on the card across. And then it also included Bill Pappas at one time while I was up there. Mm. Um, that was a big part of it. I'll have a daily tribute to uh, my dad, Yogi and Don Zimmer still on my card. And then, uh, but the other stuff, I kind of, uh, change it around a bit. And this year, the phrases are, for instance, take it. Um, nobody's going to give us anything. So I write, take it on the top left corner every day. And then hashtag don't miss it. I think that, um, not just in baseball, but in our general lives, we have this tendency to rush through things and we continually miss the meat potatoes of everything and we we want to move on to the next thought the next moment the next thing without enjoying exactly what we're going through so don't miss it is a big part skip you you've been so generous with your time with us and your philosophy is uh it, it has left uh, quite a legacy on, on chicago much much beloved forever yes 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 thank you so much for being with us and you know what Continued success out in L.A. You're not in the National League no more. I, I can root for you. Thank you, you guys, too. And really, it's always it's always good to talk. And like you said, I, I do have this real strong affinity for that city. And the, and the, the people, not just the, just the fans, the people there. I, there's a, I felt a strong connection because I felt I was, even though I didn't grow up there, I felt like one of them. And I hope they felt the same way because uh, that's five years that anybody would have loved to to be able to participate in. So I'm very grateful for all of that. I love just how down to earth he remains. And he's very much one of those, don't be sad that it's over, be happy that it happened. hundred percent. And that, that has been how he has always lived. So it makes sense that he looks at the run in exactly that way as well. But you knew he was going to look at it that way because that's, that's what he does. You know, you know the thing about baseball? Cause we were talking about this with all the failure and just how you got to show up every day and do it. You have to constantly invent new ways to like trick yourself into just being mindful, <laughs> just being mindful and staying in the moment. You know, yeah. you got to interest yourself anew every day and be in the moment. I don't know that I've ever met anybody who's as good at it as that guy, just constantly reinventing. 
the perspective if he needs to so he has peak attention to detail and a peak energy every single day. It's amazing. Chapman, that's the first time in all of the discourse that I've ever heard Joe Madden speak on it with what I felt was a level of freeness and we're far enough away from it where he was like, no, he was the best. But he basically, in so many words, said that was the best guy at the time based on who I had available. Yeah, he used him too much. And history will always know that <laughs> and say it out loud. He used him too much in too many situations where he didn't have to and for too long at times. But he stands by it. He stands by the choices and the decisions, and you have to respect that. I I do think that on some level he thought, we're never going to keep this guy, so I'm just going to take every ounce of energy that Aroldis Chapman has to give us in these playoffs. And well, you just, knew he was a rental coming into that 100%, to begin with. 100%. So when I rent cars, right, <laughs> and they give you the option to, to prepay the fuel. Yes. You can buy a gallon, you can buy a tank of gas from us. Is that the right deal? I never do it, but only, I always wonder whether it's the right deal. Only if you're going to use a tank of gas. And the, the my base level math is if I will have less than four man hours in the vehicle, never buy the gas. Tank of gas is usually anywhere from four to seven man hours, depending on the make and model. We can discuss mileage off air. But when I buy a tank of gas, yeah. I'm bringing that car back to you bone dry down to the last ounce, it will coast into the return lane at O'Hare Airport. That's basically what he did with Chapman. 100% correct. He got him to the last pitch. <laughs> but you have to be comfortable driving. Oh, it's horrifying. With less than oh, it's 10 miles of range for oh, as long horrifying. as you are. That little, that gas, <laughs> ding, 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 keeps coming up. And you know these electronic cars, they yeah. tell you exactly. You have 433 feet until uh, empty. You have one mile. You are down to six yards. Of, yeah. There was a hundred feet of range left in the tank. Oh, of I this chat comfortable. I'm not saying my strategy is comfortable. It's nerve wracking. I would imagine Joe Madden was stressed to hell as well. <laughs> But he throws 102. Maybe it'll go over the plate this time. Mm. This this interview has really given me a little bit more perspective on Game 7, and I'm happy that we had it. I really am. It, it, it gives me something to chew on about Madden's decisions in that regard. Because what he also made a fair point on, I'm kind of the guy he talks about. Like, you... You're more qualified because you watch every game, you cover every game, you analyze every game. I catch about, if the Cubs play six games in a week, I've watched three. I'll watch the MLB Network recap of the fourth. And you are more representative of the audience than I am, that's for sure. So then I'm the barstool guy. Yep. I'm the guy on Twitter that goes, <laughs> well, why didn't they do the thing that they were supposed to do? Not realizing then maybe that matchup made sense coming out of it. Cause, and, and, and we'll talk about game seven later in the series, but it was the same feeling at, at in the outfield at game seven. We were all going, why is he back out there? Right. What is happening? Oh, my God. We're go Here come that bull, <laughs> as my great uncle Derek would say. Okay, I know it's easy to get lost in the eyes and the magical mind of, yes. of Joe Madden. 
Roy, but we have to refocus on the run. Remember that? Remember why we're here? Yes. October 7th to mm-hmm. November 2nd, 2016. And next episode, we'll go back to the beginning of that magical month and the run begins. Yes, against the San Francisco Giants in the divisional series. And we're going to be joined by Katie Rich, who's you know, former writer over at Saturday Night Live. She's got a show over at Netflix now. And we're going to talk to her a bit about her memories as a Chicago original, much like yourself, Matt. And she's going to help us break down the culture of Wrigley Field and Wrigleyville and just what it means to be a Cubs fan during the playoffs in Chicago and not at your house on your couch with your then three-year-old in your face demanding Paw Patrol. (laughs) Has he seen the Paw Patrol movie, by the way, or is he aged out? Don't ask me if he's seen it. Ask me how many times I've seen it. I could do a whole podcast on the Paw Patrol movie. I could do 28 episodes on the Paw Patrol. I've seen it 49 times. Well, let's get those sessions uh, on the books, and you and I can, can go Welcome down back that to path. the Paw Patrol run. I'm Matt Spiegel. <laughs> He's Roy Wood Jane. Today, we're going to talk about policing in Adventure City. <laughs> I'm looking forward to a long career of toggling back and forth between postseason sports podcasts and children's movies, along with Roy Wood Jr. The Run is a production of Odyssey in partnership with Major League Baseball. Jody Avergan of Roulette Productions is our executive producer. Justin Kaufman is senior producer. Mixing by Joanna Ketcher at Nice Matters. Our theme song is a cover of Steve Goodman's Go Cubs Go by Chicago's very own The Hood Internet. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley and Mike D. at Odyssey and Nick Trotta at Major League Baseball. Mitch Rosen, Dustin Hapley, and Russ Matera and everybody else at 670 The Score. Also to everyone at Odyssey and Major League Baseball who helped make this happen. Special thanks to Vance Law's Glasses and Jerome Walton this episode. This is going to happen every time, apparently, huh? We have to recognize (laughs) the people. 